please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And I would encourage you again, if you've got your Bibles with me, to go ahead and open them up and turn them to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We'll be reading this morning from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read... The entirety of verses 3 through 14 as an act of worship and to get the right context here. And because, to be blunt, it's a beautiful passage of God's Word. But we're going to be focusing in specifically uh, as we get into the text on verses 7 through 10. So Ephesians chapter 1. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. Hear it now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, and to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The law of the Lord is perfect. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. It is perfect. It is pure. It is blameless. It is infallible. It is sufficient. What a gift it is, Father, that we have your revelation at our fingertips in these 66 books. Father, we praise you for this gift, which is the word of God. Lord, we pray now as we hear your word read and preached to us that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would make our hearts able to receive and understand the word of God as it is preached. Father, help us to love it, help us to cherish it, help us to remember it, and Father, certainly help us to obey it. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, if there was ever a good passage of Scripture. It's all good. But if there were ever a passage that you might find yourself as a good Presbyterian tempted to come back to, if anything, too much, if that were possible, I think Ephesians 1 has to be towards the top of that favorites list. And Ephesians chapter 1 in particular, it has got to be the magnum opus of biblical passages on the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. In fact, I would argue if we had nothing 
If, if, if the Lord never touched on His sovereignty in salvation in anywhere else in His Word, if nowhere else did we find passages concerning the Father's unconditional election, the limited atonement of the Son, the irresistible grace and perseverance that comes by the Spirit, if we found it nowhere else, I think very clearly that this passage would be more than enough. And in fact, if you were to look over to chapter 2, verses especially 1 through 10, you would find the only one of those five beautiful doctrines of grace that we're missing, which is total depravity. What a blessing of a passage of Scripture Paul has given to us. Here we find the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. Commonly in our day, these have been referred to as the five points of Calvinism, the, the TULIP acronym of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, I'm not ashamed to be a Calvinist, though I do prefer the term doctrines of grace. And, if, and if, to, to make it even more simple, I prefer the term the gospel. Because that's what we have here. This is the biblical gospel and nothing more and nothing less. That's what we have here, the biblical gospel. But we do find those doctrines of grace pretty well summarized here, do we not? In fact, I think the only place I know of in God's word that has all five of these doctrines uh, more concisely uh, would be John 6, which manages somehow to have all five in a singular verse. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, those verses will be our focus today. They declare to us that we have been redeemed by the Son. Redeemed by the Son. This is a doctrine historically that has been referred to as limited atonement. Though I've found that many have issue with the doctrine. And as you begin to have conversations, you find it's not issue with the doctrine they have, but with that word limited and so I've grown myself to prefer a term particular redemption. I think it better conveys what's trying to be conveyed there. Uh, that Christ died for his people. Christ died for his church. Christ died for his elect. And so then this morning, brothers and sisters, we will see that we have been redeemed by the Son. And these will be our points this morning. That we have been redeemed by the Son having been freed from slavery forgiven of sin, and foreknown in the Son. Freed from slavery, forgiven of sin, and foreknown in the Son. And so we see in the first place that we have been freed from slavery. Praise be to God that we have been redeemed by the Son. This is what redemption means. It is slave language. If, if someone has been redeemed, the picture is this. You were a slave... You had no money with which to buy your freedom. You had no hope of escape. And yet another comes along who determines to have grace upon you. Who determines to have mercy upon you. And so he puts the money up for your freedom. He buys your freedom. He secures it for you. And we read in verse 7 that in the Son, in Jesus, in Him, we have redemption. And so we'll see here in our first point that we have been freed from slavery. From sin to Christ by his blood. From sin to Christ by his blood, we will see each of those here in our first point. And so it is in Jesus Christ that we have been redeemed, but redeemed from what? Redeemed from what? Most of you would go, I've never been in chains. Maybe some of you have spent a night in jail, but that's not exactly slavery. What have I been freed from? 
The fact that we now have redemption implies pretty blatantly that there was something or someone to be redeemed from. That is, there was something or someone to whom we were enslaved to. So who was our master? Who was our master? If you were to look at Romans 6, I think it's pretty clear it was sin. Was it not sin? It was from sin itself that Christ has purchased us. Buying us from our former master to whom our very souls belong. Preventing that end to which we were surely headed that you see in Romans 6, which, which is that everlasting death. We were freed from slavery. We were freed from sin. But this is certainly not to imply that we are now autonomous. This is not the scripture saying, okay, you have been freed, now go and do whatever you please. Is Christ not now our master? If one comes along and finds you as a slave and they purchase you from that former master, are they not now then your master? As Paul has made clear in his epistle to the church at Rome throughout the letter, if we have been redeemed from sin, then we are now slaves of Christ in obedience. In fact, I would offer to you, brothers and sisters, this morning, that there are no truly free men or women on this planet. For everyone, all, are either slaves to sin or slaves to Christ. That is it. There is no in-between. There is no alternative offered. And so I think we have a simple choice set before us this morning. Pressed between those two options is not the latter much preferred in every way. I think so. The former is a cruel master, giving its slaves the illusion of freedom, the illusion of choice, but the whole time disabling them from doing anything good. It deprives us of the ability of any moral good we find in Romans 8.15. It makes us worthless fellows we find in Romans 3. It gives us only filthy rags with which to clothe ourselves we find in Isaiah 64. And at the end of the day, what is the reward that master sin gives to all of our labors? Death. But the latter, that master Christ Jesus, is a gracious Lord who we read of in Matthew 11, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. This Master, Christ, enables us to be loving, joyful, peaceable, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. This Master has clothed us not in filthy garments, but in His very own righteousness, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And at the end of all of it, despite our weaknesses and failure after failure, the reward is eternal life alongside Him. Though we are weak and though we struggle and though we fail more often than not, we will hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. I think it would be easy then. It'd be easy but between those two options when we hear that to wonder why then would so many prefer sin to Christ? It doesn't make sense, does it? Who, who would look at those two options on paper and say, I want sin? But I think maybe it's because we were all born under sin's service. That's our default. 
Ephesians 2 tells us you weren't born sick in sin, you were born dead in it. Dead, D-E-A-D, dead. Psalm 51.5, we read David telling us that I was brought forth in iniquity. And David says it was in sin that he was conceived. So from the moment two individual cells became a multi-celled organism, a baby in the womb, David said there was sin. This is our default. And so I think we kind of have somewhat of a spiritual Stockholm syndrome. But the reality is actually far worse. Like a slave master who would hobble the legs of their slaves to prevent them from escaping, the enemy, we read in 2 Corinthians 4, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. He has kept them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So even if you were, even if there was a chance of you on your own breaking away from the default, that former master prevents your escape. And so what hope is there? What can be done? This certainly seems and sounds pretty hopeless, does it not? What can be done? And this is the gospel. You could not do anything. I could not do anything, but there is one who could and did. The triune God, in his infinite love and mercy and grace, he devised a plan before the foundation of time. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, when there was no other, made a covenant among themselves to redeem a people for themselves. As Paul makes clear in the preceding verses, 3 through 6, which we read this morning, we have been chosen by the Father. And now Paul makes clear that we have been redeemed by the Son. And so praise be to God that He did not wait for us to escape from our former Master. Because He knew we couldn't. Romans 3, there was nothing we could do. None of us, no, not one, had any good thing to bring. And yet he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. He gives us the sight to see Christ as the glorious, gracious master that he is. And he does so through giving us his spirit. Which we also read of this morning in verses 13 through 14. He redeems us. He has purchased us. He has made us his own. And so we were freed from slavery, freed from sin, freed to Christ. But with what currency has Christ made this transaction? We read clearly this morning that it was through his blood. It was through his blood that we were bought. Gold and silver, fiat, bitcoin, none of this was going to suffice. The debt could only be paid in death. We find it very clearly throughout God's word. In particular, we could look at Romans 6.23. The wages of sin are what? Death. That's the cost. That's the price. That's the fee. But the only way one could pay for another is if he himself was debt-free and a proper representative. Two requirements. Debt-free and a proper representative. And so this is why then under the old covenant, the priest would offer spotless lambs as a sacrifice for their people. Because the priest met one of the requirements. He could represent the people because he was a person. He could represent his people. But he didn't meet both requirements. The lamb met the other requirement. He was a spotless sacrifice and you needed both together. The priest represented the people. The lamb had no sin. And yet the payment was never sufficient. The payment was never permanent. 
For once the lamb died, it remained dead, yet what problem do we have? The people are going to wake up and they're going to sin tomorrow, aren't they? They had to constantly find new sheep, find new priests, because both the sheep and the priest at some point was going to die. It was never sufficient. It was never permanent. We read in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It does not matter how near you draw to those old covenant sacrifices. It doesn't matter how authentically you do them or how much your heart is in it. It will never suffice. Otherwise, we read in Hebrews, would they not have ceased to be offered? I think a good argument. If it worked, why did they keep having to do it? Since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But these sacrifices, in these sacrifices, there is but a reminder of sins every year. This is really all they did at the end of the day. It was a reminder placed ever before the people, you are not enough, you have sinned, you will stand before a holy God. Every time, this is what the sacrifice did. This is what the sacrifice offered. And spoiler alert, the point was not for the people to look at the sacrifices and say, okay, now we're good. Why was that reminder there? Was God just being mean and cruel? No, it was supposed to be so that the people would say, there is no way we can do this on our own. There has to be another. This is why we rejoice as we read in Hebrews 7 that when we read of Christ, our great high priest, our sacrifice, that Christ has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those people since he did this once for all when he offered himself. You remember those two requirements we spoke of a minute ago? You have to have a proper representative, the priest. He's a person, so he can be a representative. He's, he's an Israelite. But you also have to have a spotless sacrifice. The priest was not that. He had sins of his own, so you had to have a lamb. Have you ever considered that in Christ, why did Christ have to come? Why did we need the God-man? Why is that doctrine crucial to our salvation? Because it is only the God-man who meets both of those requirements. Who is both a perfect representative. He is a man just like any of us are. He is like us in every way, yet without sin. Yet without sin. He is both the representation and the spotless sacrifice. Christ was himself debt-free and a proper representative. Being both perfectly sinless God but also fully human in every single way. This is the ingenuity of the mind of your Savior. This is why it is so important to properly understand that big mouthful of a word, the hypostatic union. We live in an era where, where, where the most important thing to so many people is, is ecumenicalism. You hear this left and right, that we need to find common ground. We need to unite together, forget those other things, join together, join together. And to which part? At a face value, I would say amen. Presbyterians aren't, aren't the only Christians. Amen? We're, if you didn't know that, we're not. <laughs> we have many faithful brothers and sisters who are Baptists and Anglicans and, and Lutherans and fill in the blank, who surely we disagree on plenty, and someone's right and someone's wrong, but they're family disagreements. But we do have to draw a line somewhere. There is a line somewhere. Who is God? Who is Christ? How is man saved? If that's not the line, I don't know what is. 
The hypostatic union then is not just some lofty term that, that seminary students like to sit around and talk about. It is crucial. It is necessary that Jesus be both the 100% God and man. And so we've seen here in our four, first point that we have been freed from slavery, from sin to Christ by his blood. But what do we do with that? What's our response? Well, for those who are still dead in your sins, who are still enslaved to that former master, repent. Place your faith not in yourself, but in the abilities of Christ, in the work of Christ. Plead with him to forgive you. Plead with him to save you. Plead with him to give you his spirit to be born again. He is a gracious and a merciful master. And for my brothers and sisters, let us praise God that we have been redeemed by the Son and let's live with the duty ever before us to make this known to others. But it was not only through His blood that we were freed from slavery to sin, but it is also through His blood that we have been forgiven of sin, which leads us to our second point. Through Christ's blood, we have been both freed from sin and forgiven of sin. This is why the payment had to be in blood. Because without the shedding of blood, we read in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It had to be done. And this is not just God saying, well, this is one way I could do it. This was it. This was the way. And so let's see in our second point here that we've been forgiven of sin exclusively in Christ and sufficiently in Christ. Exclusively in Christ and sufficiently in Christ. And so we have been forgiven of sin exclusively in Christ. This is not a popular word these days, is it? No one in our culture anymore likes exclusion, do they? Inclusion is the idol of the day. But this is not scripture. We have been forgiven of sin exclusively in Christ. Whether it originates in our own depraved hearts or from the lips of the enemy, we do nothing but believe a lie when we presume that there are any other ways by which God will forgive our sins. There are many lies out there when it comes to God's forgiveness in Christ's redemption. I think of one that I've heard often, that I used to believe myself, that many convince themselves of, that as long as my good outweighs my bad, I have mistakes and I have problems, but isn't that what it means to be human? Truly God will understand. As, as long as I can do enough to make up for the bad I inevitably do, the scales will turn in my favor. But this is foolishness for at least three reasons. One... If God merely forgives the sin without punishing it, would he not be inconsistent then with his own character? For we read in Psalm 711 that God is a righteous judge. What would you say of a judge who knows that the man standing before him is guilty and lets him walk free? That's a bad judge. That's a wicked judge. That, that man should not be a judge. And this is not our God. If God merely forgives sin without punishing it, he would be a liar. For he would break his own word when he tells us that the wages of sin is death. And three, even our best deeds, we read, are filthy rags. In the eyes of a holy God, we find in Romans 8.8 8, that those who are in the flesh can do nothing, we read, nothing to please God. No one does good, no, not even one, Romans 3. Some have strayed even further from the truth. And have become convinced that God won't, won't judge at all. How many times have you heard that one? I've heard it plenty. Well, if God is loving and merciful, then he can't judge. That's, that, that doesn't make sense. It's this picture of, well, if he's loving, then he couldn't do anything that would be mean or hurt my feelings. 
They've become convinced that God won't judge at all. The reasoning is pretty simple. It's wrong, but it's pretty simple. If God is good, then they reason there can't be a hell. To the contrary, if God is good, there must be a hell. And I think we know that for at least two reasons. Basic logic in the Bible. When we look at events, let's just pick out a big one. The Holocaust, 9-11, the burning and mutilating of Christian men as martyrs, women and children slain at the hands of the militant. Do you not come away knowing in your hearts that there must be retribution and judgment and accounting for these deeds? Does not something deep down in you, written on your hearts maybe, testify that there has to be an accounting for these things? If a good earthly judge would not let a murderer or a rapist go free, how could God? God's word makes clear that God punishes those who are not covered in the blood of Christ in a literal physical place called hell. This may not be popular, but it is the truth. Revelation 20, 14 through 15, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The sacrifice of Christ is the exclusive way by which men may be saved. There is no other. There is no mountaintop where there's multiple trails and you might go this way and I might go that way and as long as we make it to the top, we're good. No, it was an impassable mountain. No one could make it up and so God came down his own way. There is no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved except for the name of Christ Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There is no other. God's word also makes it clear for us that not only was his blood exclusive, but it was sufficient. It was sufficient. Remember earlier when we looked at Hebrews and we discussed the Old Testament offering system. They they constantly had to offer up, constantly had to offer up, constantly had to offer up, constantly get new priests. They had to do it constantly because it wasn't sufficient. Both died. Both had to be replaced. Both had to be renewed. But it is not like that with our sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice of his blood on his elect's behalf is sufficient. And it only happened once. Now there are some who would like to argue that it's not sufficient. I have several dear friends that I've grown up alongside. I have their numbers saved in my phone. We text, we talk. They're friends, dear friends. But we're very clear in our disagreement at this point. This is one place where we find a strong starch disagreement between us and the Roman Catholics. It is openly an aspect of their theology that they make known. It is what their church teaches. That Catholic doctrine holds that while Christ's blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins, it is not sufficient. This isn't hearsay. This isn't me being a mean Presbyterian. It is in their doctrine. You can Google it and find it. And I've heard it with my own ears, seen it with my own eyes. A few years ago, I got to sit before a debate that happened between a renowned Catholic apologist named Trent Horn and Dr. James White. And Trent Horn there, I was sitting in the front row in attendance and with my own eyes and ears, Trent Horn, this renowned Catholic apologist, said that this is why they perform the Mass. This is why it's so important that we don't ever compare our Lord's Supper to the Mass. They are not the same thing. 
Trent Horn, Catholic apologist, said himself, In the Mass, we believe that the bread and wine, when blessed by the priest, becomes the physical body and blood of Christ. We profess that when we partake of the Mass, we are re-sacrificing Christ for our sins. Every time. Did you know that? That in every Roman Catholic church around the world, as they partake of the Mass Sunday after Sunday, they aren't just partaking in the Lord's Supper. In their theology, they are re-sacrificing Jesus for their sins every week, every time, over and over and over and over again. Every time. And so when asked by Dr. James White, well, then how do you have assurance of faith? How then do you believe in the sufficiency of Christ's death for you and your salvation? Trent Horn, without skipping a beat, blatantly and proudly and clearly proclaimed in response, we don't. We've never claimed to believe the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. The Roman Catholic Church, Trent Horn said, has never taught that and does not teach that. It is contrary to our doctrine. And he made no apology about it. It was just clear as day for him. He was confused that Dr. James White would have even asked that question. And brothers and sisters, again, like the hypostatic union we spoke of earlier, this isn't just a little difference. This isn't a secondary thing. This is heresy. It was one of the key reasons that the Protestant Reformation happened. But we often just think of terms of, uh, of salvation by faith alone. This was arguably just as important, if not more important, of one of the reasons that the Protestant Reformation happened. The doctrine of the Mass. The Word of God makes clear that Christ has no need to be resacrificed. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven himself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it, Hebrews 9, to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His death, his blood, his resurrection was once, and it was sufficient. And so we've seen in our second point that we've been forgiven of sin, exclusively and sufficiently in Christ. So brothers and sisters, let's praise him. Let's praise him. Let's live with that duty to make it known and let us never be guilty of trusting in ourselves. In our works, in our efforts to gain favor before God. Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. We do good works and we live a life of obedience and worship in response to God's sufficient works on our behalf. Not to garner them. And in our third and final point, we see that we are foreknown in the Son. We are foreknown in the Son. How and why have we been redeemed by the Son? It's because we were foreknown in Him. Verses 7 through 10 states that this redemption was according to the riches of His grace, by which He, lav he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according... I'll just point out... Notice in Ephesians 1 that we read earlier how repeatedly you read that phrase, according to his purpose, according to his purpose, according to his purpose, by his will. It wasn't yours, it wasn't mine, it's according to his. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And so when we look at the how and to the why of our redemption, Paul tells us that it was solely because of God's grace according to his purpose. Nowhere will you find here that it's because we deserved it or earned it 
He doesn't say it was because we desired it or wanted it. He says it was by God's grace alone. It was according to his sovereign set plan. We see in the passage immediately preceding that we read that that we were chosen by the Father. Repeatedly. We read it over and over. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined us according to his purpose and to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, the Father chose his people, and then the Son is sent to die for those people. This is what has historically been referred to as limited atonement, but as I mentioned earlier, I've grown to prefer another term, particular redemption. It's not that limited atonement is wrong, but I think the modern ear, when it hears that, they hear limited and they think, oh, it's weak, or it's insufficient, or it's incapable. But that's not what's being conveyed. God the Father, before the foundation of time, unconditionally elected those whom he would save. And then Jesus Christ the Son took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died and buried and rose again to redeem those particular people. It is a limited atonement in that the scope is limited to those people. But this is not meant to convey that the power of Christ's redemption is limited. Only rather the scope of it. What was its intent? It is particular. It is specific. And many take issue with this. Many, many take issue with this. While our Catholic friends might be alone in their practice of the Mass, they're unfortunately accompanied by many more in their beliefs regarding the sufficiency of Christ's redemption. There are many that though they would quickly condemn Rome's perversion of the Gospel, they kind of participated in themselves when they deny and debate the sufficiency of Christ's death. These folks will say regarding the redemption of Christ that that Christ's death and resurrection made salvation possible for everyone. But have you ever stopped and considered that in so doing, they make Christ's redemption not actually accomplish anything at all? And so I think we have to ask ourselves something. I I think we're, we're faced with a very serious question here. Did Christ come to make salvation possible... Or did he come to actually save? Which is it? Did he say it is now possible or did he say it is finished? Did his death, burial, and resurrection actually accomplish anything? Or did it just make it possible? You only have three choices here, brothers and sisters. Either one... Christ died for all the sins of all men, which is universalism. Two, Christ died for some of the sins of all men, which would mean that Christ's death actually didn't accomplish anything, that Christ failed, that no one will be saved. Or three, that Christ died for all the sins of some men, which I would commend to you is the clear biblical gospel. And so consider this with me. If Christ died for everyone, didn't he then therefore satisfy the demands of God's wrath for everyone? Did he not then therefore cast out the sins of everyone? Well, then shouldn't everyone be saved? But we know with our own eyes that not everyone is saved, don't we? So what do you do with that? If I were to look at a fellow and say, no, Christ died for you, 
And then that fellow goes to hell. Well, if Christ truly died for him, then one of two things is happening. Either, either God is unjust. Have you ever considered this? Because he's punishing the same sin twice. If Christ died for person A, that means his sins have been atoned for. The punishment has been made. Someone died for that sin. But then if they go to hell anyway and are punished, are they not being punished twice for the same crime? If I get a speeding ticket, I pay it once and I'm done. I don't pay it twice, three times, four times. It doesn't work like that. But God is just. And God cannot fail. And to state that some for whom Christ died will not be saved is to state, there is no way around it, that either Christ failed or that God is unjustly punishing the same sin twice. And we don't want either of those. And we clearly see that when Paul says that God's plan was to unite all things in Christ, that he's not advocating for universalism. It would go against everything else Paul writes in his letters. The scriptures make abundantly clear that sadly, there will be many who perish. Many who reject the gospel. Many who face God's judgment for eternity. This is why that is the wide path, the wide gate, and many enter through it. And so then we find that the language of all here, this is what I think is the most often misused and misunderstood. Well, it says all, Pastor. Amen, it does say all. What does he mean by all? It does not mean every single individual or else every single individual would be saved. And sadly, we don't see that. All then conveys all kinds of peoples. Remember Paul's context. Writing to people who who for generations have thought only the Jews have God's salvation. But now it's for Jew and Gentile. It's for men and women. It's for rich and poor, white and black, and fill in between. It is for all kinds of peoples. This is why we read in Revelation that on that great day there will be gathered before the throne of God people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, all peoples. We see then that the biblical gospel is that Christ died for his sheep. The church, his bride, the elect, not merely making salvation a potential possibility, but an accomplished reality for them. In John 10, Jesus makes clear, he says, I lay down my life, I lay down my life for who? The sheep. He does not say he lays down his life for the sheep and the goats. He lays down his life for the sheep that the Father has given to him and no one can snatch them from his hand. My favorite picture of this is one that is not normally used, but in Ephesians chapter 5, the basis, the very basis given for which and for why a husband is to love his wife is how Christ loved the church, and we read, and laid down his life for her. Who did Christ love? Who did Christ lay his life down for in Ephesians 5? Not the world, but the church. Throughout our passage today, look at who has received this redemption. Go home. Do a word study. Words for the recipients of this redemption repeatedly in our passage. Us and we. We have been foreknown in the Son. And so what do we do with that? In closing, what is our response? For those who are still not yet made anew in Christ... For those who come here this morning and and you say, that's just not where I am. I I know that's not where I am. I don't have Christ. Don't get caught up in trying to determine whether you're elect or not. That's not a concern for you. Repent of your sins. 
place your faith in the finished works of Christ, plead with Him to forgive you, plead with Him to save you, plead with Him to give you His Spirit to be born again, because the truth that we see in God's Word is that anyone who can truly do those things has been chosen by the Father. How do I know if I'm one of the elect? Well, do you love Christ? Do you hate your sin? Then you are one. For my brothers and sisters, let's praise Him. Let's worship Him. Let's worship Him. What a pride destroyer this doctrine is. To know that I did nothing to merit it. I did nothing to deserve it. I did nothing to earn it. That it was only by His grace and His grace alone that I stand here now. What a pride destroyer. We, more than any people, should be a humble people. Let's worship Him. Let's praise Him. That we have been foreknown in the Son, forgiven of sin, and freed from slavery. Will you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the worship of your saints. We thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for the encouragement and the confidence that we find in the sovereignty of God. That at the end of the day, it doesn't rest upon us. It's not contingent on us. The door does not hinge and swing open and shut depending on us. It is you who is seated in the heavens, who surveys all, who sees all, who knows all. Father, we praise you that in your grace and in your mercy and in your love, that you saw us and you saved us and made us your own. Father, help us to rejoice in this. And we pray that this would keep us humble and that it would fill us up with a fervent spirit for the proclamation of the gospel to the lost, knowing that when we go out in our neighborhoods and communities and we proclaim the gospel, that when you are elect hear it, they will be saved. And it is not dependent upon us having a catchy sales pitch. It's not dependent upon our knowledge or, or our use of words or our oratory abilities. But Father, it is dependent upon you who saves. Father, help us to trust in you and to worship you and to obey you. We pray it in his name. Amen.